Um, as far as the message this morning, I'm going to prepare you a little bit, all right, before we get to the scripture. We're going to be reading from the book of Hebrews, okay? The book of Hebrews is, uh, it tends to be a little bit difficult to follow when you just kind of try and read through. Um, we talked about this before when, we, when we've, we've read out of it, um, but the author likes to interrupt himself a lot with these various thoughts of like, hey, you know how I said this, well, how about this? And it's kind of hard to follow it all the way through. But not only does he uh, interrupt himself a lot, he also um, makes a lot of assumptions when he's writing, okay? And the kind of assumption he makes are like that the reader knows what, he, what he's writing about. And he makes all these references to Israel, to their history, and to the scripture that they had. So the Old Testament scripture, right? So he's making all these, all these uh, assumptions that when I say this, you know what I mean because you're Hebrews. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews, right? So you know the history of the Hebrews and you know the scriptures of the Hebrews and, and, and you have to know that they had this all committed to memory. Um, it was an oral tradition at that point. So there is a, a, a lot of assumptions that he makes. So when you look at like even just right off the bat with Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1 uh, verse 1 starts out this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his, in his son. So like right away, right off the bat, he is, he is making some assumptions there about the reader. The reader knows, okay, that, that the prophets, God spoke through the prophets, okay? And he's making this argument. He's using the past scripture in Old Testament and, and their history as like the basis for them to understand this. So he says, so he's using the past, the prophets, and what they know about the past, God spoke through the prophets to make his point about Jesus, the son of God now, God has also spoken to us like he spoke to the prophets in the past. Does that make sense? So he's using their past and their history um, in, in that way. And so we see this pattern over and over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. A lot of it is actually direct quotes from Old Testament scripture. Uh, and if you open your Bible, if you, if you have a physical body, it's, it's not gonna show up up here, but if you look at a physical copy of your Bible, like those quotes are set out, they're usually all capitalized. Um, and when, they're, when they come in big forms, you can see like it's, it's set out to the side. So uh, I'll just show you here. So this part right here, that's a, that's a quote from Psalms. And we're actually gonna talk about that today. All right. So anyway, we're gonna go to the, uh, the book of Hebrews chapter three, starting in verse 12, um, and just don't be overwhelmed, all right? Don't be overwhelmed when we start. So it says this in Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be any one of you, excuse me, that there will not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers in Christ, of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end. While it is said, today, this is a quote, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses and with whom, he was, ang and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose dead bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he, did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Chapter four, therefore we must fear if 
while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word they heard did not benefit them because they were not united with those who listened with faith. For we who have believed enter that rest. Okay, did you get all that? It was a lot, right? It was a lot. We're gonna work our way through it. And I think you're gonna like where we end up because honestly, it's good news, okay? It's really good news. But I wanna break it down for you this morning. And in order to break it down, let's first get our bearings. What are we even talking about? Where are, we, where, where are we headed with this thing, okay? And where we are headed is this one phrase that I've keyed in on and I think is the whole theme of chapters three and four, even though we just read a portion of it. But it's that phrase, entering his rest, okay? Entering God's rest. That's what this whole discussion from the author of Hebrews is about. And I'm gonna keep saying the author of Hebrews because we don't really know who the author was. A lot of people think it's Paul, but it does, it's not quite the same style. It doesn't matter. I'm just gonna say Hebrews or the author of Hebrews, all right? But that's what this whole discussion is about. Entering his rest. And he kind of takes the scenic route to get there, but he gets there. Uh, and, and there's a lot more that we could read from chapters three and four that would make that same point. But this is the focus of what he's writing about. We have the opportunity, you and I, he's writing to people and he says, you have the opportunity to enter God's rest. So that's what we're talking about this morning. What is God's rest? Like, what does it mean when he writes that? How do we enter God's rest? And when do we enter God's rest? All of that, Okay. But that phrase, for the listener, for the reader, the original reader, the Hebrew, entering God's rest, that's a loaded phrase for these people, okay? When they hear that, immediately, they're thinking Sabbath, rest, right? The day of rest, immediately, that's where their mind goes. It's a loaded phrase. And, and it, it, I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Sabbath and we read all of the laws that were associated with the Sabbath so that you didn't break the Sabbath, right? That's how important it was to them. So they know where he's going with this. Okay? They know where he's, he's headed with it and how seriously the Jewish people took, uh, took that law or that, the, the idea of a Sabbath. And that's actually where the writer of Hebrews is going with this, all right? And, and what we're gonna see is we're gonna follow the trail of the Old Testament and of the history of Israel and see why he's just referencing this idea of Sabbath and this idea of rest. Because it's really important for us to recognize the connections that he's making in order to see the full argument, if you wanna say that, okay, of that. So this little quote that we read, that, I, that, that part that I said, this is a quote. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts when they provoke me. Okay, that's a direct quote. That's from Psalm 95. And he uses, again, he's using the history and he's using scripture in order to make a point. So if we're gonna make sense of this, then we gotta follow his argument. And because we're not Hebrew people, most of us probably, then we're gonna make sense of this and we're gonna follow it. So we're gonna go to Psalm 95 and we're gonna see what this scripture is that he's quoting. Why is he quoting this scripture? Because there's a purpose. It's not just, I like these words, there's a purpose. Okay, so Hebrew, or excuse me, Psalm 95, verse eight. It says this, or starting in verse seven, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and they tested me, though they had seen my work. 
For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they certainly shall not enter my rest. See, always talking about the same thing, Sabbath, entering rest, okay? Talking about the same thing. He's making a point here. So he's writing about God's rest. And to reiterate that, he quotes from the Psalm of David, where David wrote about a time in the history of Israel. <laughs> you following the trail? Like, this, this would be natural for them. It's not so natural for us, okay? Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, quotes Psalm 95, a Psalm of David that is written about a time when Israel is in the wilderness. This is right after they came out of Egypt. And that's what, that's what Psalm 95 is about. And, and now the author of Hebrews has quoted that Psalm that is written about that time. And he's talking about our ability to enter God's rest. So there's a connection that he's trying to make, right? A connection that he's trying to, to make with what happened, as David said, at Meribah and Massa, okay? What is the thing that he's pointing at? What's he trying to get to? So we have to go back to that story, okay? We're following the trail. We have to go back to that story. Uh, and if you look in Exodus 16 and 17, you're gonna find what David wrote this Psalm about, this time about Meribah and Massa and about a Sabbath. Because if you go to verse Exodus 16, you find the first instance, the very first instance that God talks about a Sabbath. Interesting, right? And so uh, what's happened is the people have just come out of Egypt, right? God, through miraculous uh, circumstances, you know that whole thing, right? Let my people go, right? If you're Charlton Heston. Um, miraculous circumstances. Moses, the plagues, all of that. God brought them through the Red Sea. Now they're on a journey to a land that God has promised them. So there's all of those miracles. They've already seen that. Okay, they've seen God work and provide in that way. And then along that journey, they've seen God provide other miracles. They, he's provided them with clean water in a situation where all they had was bitter water for whatever reason, I don't know if it was salt water or what it was, but God said, Moses, do this, Moses did that. And all of a sudden now it's clean water and it's drinkable. Okay, so God provided in that way. God has provided uh, quail for meat and he's provided manna for bread. And that's where we get to the crux of this whole thing because God is providing for the people of Israel and he's providing time and time again. Now, when God provides the manna, there's a special deal with the manna. They had to collect the manna on a daily basis, okay? So the dew would come in, this is how it happened. The dew came in, settled on the land, the dew burned off, left, whatever, however you want to say it, and, uh, and manna was left. And they collected that, and that was, that was what, I don't know if they made bread out of it, if they ate it straight in flakes, whatever, right? But that was what was left, the manna. And there, so they were, there was enough for them to collect for that day. They ate that for that day, and then the next day they went out and they did the whole thing again. And the point is, this is a daily trusting of God to provide for their needs, okay? Daily trusting. Got to go out and collect every day. Don't collect more than you're supposed to collect. Don't collect more than you have. Some people did. It rotted, right? It had worms in it. Didn't work. God said, daily trusting. And so the people go out and, uh, and they do. The only exception to that was on the sixth day, 
God says, I'll provide you two days worth so that on the seventh day, you don't have to go collect. I will provide for you so that you can rest. The seventh day is to be a day of rest. It's for you, okay? And in order for you to enjoy that, I will provide two days worth that you can collect on the sixth day so you don't have to go back out. And by the way, if you go back out, there's not gonna be anything for you to collect anyway, okay? So enjoy the day, rest. That's what it's about. So Exodus 16, what do you think happens? Don't go out and collect on the seventh day because there's not gonna be anything there. They don't do it, right? There's people that go out and try to collect it, but it's not there. So Exodus 16, 26. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. That's the first instance of the word Sabbath in the scripture. Yet it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Should I say that again? The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Given you the Sabbath. It's for you, is what he's telling them. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's not for God. It's for the people. Let me find my spot again. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. For that reason, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain everyone in his place. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Given you, that's, the, that's key, okay? Given you the Sabbath. So the people rested on the seventh day. The whole incident that we're looking at right here, this is the first reference to the Sabbath in scripture. Stick with me. What is the context of it? This is the first time it's an idea. God says, I have given you the Sabbath. Take it and enjoy it. And you can enjoy it. Why? The only way, or how, how can you enjoy it? Well, the only way you can enjoy it is if you trust me that I have provided for you. If you trust that, enough, that, that on the sixth day, there was enough for you on the seventh day. Otherwise, you're gonna go out and you're gonna try and work and you're trying to gather it on your own and it's not gonna be restful. The only way you can enjoy what I have given you is if you trust me and what I have provided. God made it possible to rest. God did it all. You see this? This is still from Hebrews. He's still making this argument. And what it took to enjoy that rest, what it required is believing that God would provide, believing that God had provided on the sixth day. That's what it took, believing that God had provided. And this is a theme because if you go on, on, on to the next chapter in Exodus 17, you have the story of what happened at Meribah and Massa. And what happened at Meribah and Massa is that the people were grumbling again because we don't have water. And Moses, and Moses said, God, these people are grumbling again. And so God said, all right, go strike this rock. I'll provide you with water. God provided the water. But they named it Meribah and Massa because the people, the people said, uh, they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? I would wanna look at these people and be like, listen, do you remember where we were 10 days ago in Egypt? Do you remember this? How did we get out of Egypt? Oh, the Lord provided. How did we survive this long? Oh, the Lord provided. How did we have water the first day? The Lord provided. What is the point of the Sabbath and remembering the Sabbath? The point is that God is providing. And yet here we have this thing that, we're not, that they're not trusting God again to provide for them. That's the point. They were testing God. They were not trusting that God would provide. So put it together, okay? 
Put it together. The author of Hebrews uses a Psalm of David that references these instances where he's talking to these Hebrew people and he says, your forefathers didn't trust God to provide when he said that he would provide, but instead tested him. Instances of these people having the opportunity to enter rest, but not trusting God to provide for them so that they could actually enjoy that rest. That's the author of Hebrews. That's, that's his point. That's the point he's making. But he's, he, he's saying, God had provided you with this rest. But you haven't, you're not willing to do the thing that it takes to enjoy the rest. God's given it to you. God's done it all. God's provided for you. But there's something that's required in order for you to do that. If you want to enter God's rest, then you must trust him. That's, the, that's, that's Hebrews point right here in three and four. If you want to enter God's rest, then you must trust him. You must believe him. That was the case for the Sabbath, trusting God to provide through the, the manna, enough manna so that they could have enough to eat for the next day. And that's the case for, the, for what he's writing here right now, entering God's rest, because he's not talking about a day. He's not talking about a Sabbath day. That's not his point. He's writing about a greater version of entering God's rest that is not about a day of the week. It is a day of, it's not, it's not a day of rest. It's a life of rest. This is what he's talking to you about. Hebrews says, you have the opportunity to enter a life of rest. And he quotes this psalm saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like your forefathers did when I offered them rest. If you want to enter God's rest, you must trust him. You must trust that he has provided. Well, how do I know if I want to enter God's rest? Maybe I like working. What even is God's rest? What are we talking about? What does it mean for us to enter God's rest? I believe we get a picture of what it means to enter God's rest when we look at the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, before the fall. When God created the garden and God put people there before the fall of man, it was paradise, right? It's paradise. God's rest is paradise. In the garden, there is no want for anything. All of their needs are met, right? There is no guilt. There is no shame. There is no anxiety. There is no fear. There is perfect unity with God. And Adam and Eve experience perfect unity with one another. Okay? Paradise. Paradise. It says God designed it. And there's rest. This is what God designed. The last thing that God does after creating all of, all, all of everything else, right? He creates the heavens and the earth and the animals and the, and the land and the sea and all that stuff, right? What does he do? He rests. Did you know that when you look at the scripture, that there is, after every single day of creation, it says, and there was morning and there was evening and the next day. Do you know it doesn't say that when, on, the, on the seventh day when God rested? I don't know, maybe it's just a thing, but maybe it's that that's still the case. So when you look at 
God creating Adam and Eve and putting Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve are literally living in God's rest. Literally. I love that idea. It's an incredible thought. Every other day of creation, it says there was morning and evening in that day. It doesn't say that about the day that God rested. It says on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So from the foundation of the world, the work was done in eternity. God rested. Hebrews even talks about that later in chapter four, if you wanna look it up. But I believe that Adam and Eve were living in God's rest in the garden. Literally, that's paradise. Now, does that mean that there wasn't work to be done in the garden? No, it says God put them there for them to cultivate and tend the garden. But that is vastly different from what happens after the fall when God says to Adam, the ground is cursed because of you. You're gonna labor and you shall, to, in order to eat from it, like thorns and thistles are gonna grow up. You're gonna sweat. Uh, I mean, you'll eat bread, but it's gonna be from the sweat of your brow, right? So there's a, a large distinction between what we know it takes to create a garden versus what Adam and Eve were experiencing. Most people don't find it restful. There are people who, who are rejuvenated by taking care of a garden, but it's hard work, right? It's not what Adam and Eve were doing. There's a vast difference. But that picture of living in God's rest is incredible. And I believe if you can go there with me, I believe that's what we are being invited to today. I believe that's what these scriptures are saying. That's what the author of, of Hebrews, that's what he's saying in these couple of chapters. That's what they're about, rest. Resting in God's presence, rest. And when you think about it, that idea is humanity, people experiencing life with God the way it was supposed to be experienced. And how is it? It's rest. It's not work. It's not labor. It's not stress. It's not, not, not anxiety. It's rest. And so Adam and Eve were invited into that, and I believe we have been invited into that. And if you want to enter into it, there's one requirement. You've got to trust that God has provided Adam and Eve didn't trust God. The serpent came to them and they said, listen, he, he said, listen, the only, uh, the only reason that God told you not to eat from that tree is uh, because if you eat from it, you'll become like God. You'll know good and evil. In other words, he's holding something back from you. He's not giving you everything you need for the human experience. He's not giving you everything you need to, to be fully aware. So he's not providing for you in a real way. Do you see how it's about trusting God? They didn't trust God when God said, I've given you everything. And the serpent said, yeah, not everything. And so they didn't trust God and they ate the fruit that he said not to. And immediately their lives were devoid of rest. Immediately. They were immediately ashamed of being naked in front of one another. So they got to work making coverings for themselves. That's not something they had to do before. They got to, they, they got to being afraid that God was gonna find out, so they hid from him. And all of a sudden, all the things that keep us from enjoying rest start to enter the picture. 
You see that? Starting to creep in. The separation from God starts with not trusting him and continues on to this day. We can't enter God's rest if we're not trusting that he has provided. Because entering God's rest today for you and me, this is the argument from Hebrews, is still about whether you trust him to provide everything for your life, for your relationship with God. Just like Israel was supposed to trust God for the water and the manna, right? That's what we have to do. We have to trust God to provide everything. And I'm not necessarily talking about physical, right? Like, like food and bread and all that stuff. I mean, yes, that's a part of it. I really do believe that. But I'm talking in a spiritual sense because what often takes place in the Old Testament in a physical way plays out in our lives in a spiritual way. The other place it talks about entering God's rest or another place in the Old Testament is, uh, is when the children of Israel were supposed to enter the promised land. So they're still on this journey, right? They come up out of Egypt, they're led by God. They get to the edge of the promised land where God said, go. And if you go, I will fight for you. I will go before you. I will drive out the people that live there. I know they're giants. I know they're vicious. I know they're ruthless. I know they're stronger than you and I know they outnumber you, but I will go before you. I'll do it. I'll do it. All you got to do is go. All you got to do is trust me and go. Do, uh, do uh, act according to, to, to trusting me. I will provide the way. You will have houses that you didn't build. You will eat and drink from vineyards that you didn't plant. In other words, I will provide for you. All you have to do is trust that I'll do what I say I'll do. And they turned around and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. I'll do it all. Meh, not so sure, God. And all that generation passed after 40 years. And most, of the pe- most people, when we read that story, we make that about uh, uh, disobedience, right? They didn't obey God. God said, go in. They didn't obey God. We make it about disobedience. I think it's more about trust. They didn't trust that God would do what he said he would do, which led to disobedience. But listen, you can obey without trusting. That's called compliance. See that? You can obey an order. You can obey a command without trusting God. That's what 613 commandments were all about. Obeying the command without trusting God, without believing that he actually had given them something. That's called compliance. That's why they made rules upon rules upon rules. That's not restful. That doesn't, we read, what was it, 39? 39 laws to make sure you're resting on the Sabbath? That's, That's work. I gotta keep up with that? Are you kidding me? That's not restful. That didn't, that, that, was, that was about following the command, but not trusting God to provide because I don't trust God to provide all the things that I need. Therefore, I, I've got to make it up for myself. I've got, got to put up the guardrails for myself. And so instead of experiencing a life of rest that, these, the, that the children of Israel were supposed to experience in the promised land, they had a terrible experience in the wilderness. Everybody who was at that point died off, but we see this pattern over and over and over and over again. 
And like I said, what we see play out in the Old Testament so many times in a physical way with the people of Israel is what we see in our lives play out spiritually. God created Adam and Eve to live in a life of rest, but they didn't trust God. He was providing all that they needed. They didn't trust him in that. God led Israel out of Egypt to the promised land and said, all you have to do is trust me, it's yours. I'll do it all. But they ran the other way because they didn't trust that God could or that God would do that. And so they didn't experience the life of rest that God had created them for. If you go to Hebrews chapter four, verses eight through 10, so we've skipped a little bit, but we're continuing on in this thing. It says this, for if Joshua had given them rest, so eventually they got into the promised land, right? The land of rest, entered his rest. But if Joshua had given them rest, he says, then he would, have not, he would not have spoken of another day after that. In other words, consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's another rest that I'm talking about here. This is what Hebrews is saying, okay? Consequently, there remains a Sabbath day of rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Joshua eventually led the people of Israel into the promised land, but the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, that's not all. That wasn't, like, I know that's kind of how we look at it, and that was our heyday in the promised land, and we were all there, but that's not the rest that I'm talking about. Like, there is a parallel here, but that's not it. That was rest, but there is rest for us. There is rest for you. Physical, mental, spiritual rest. God's rest. Salvation. Righteousness. Sonship. He's asking us to trust him for it. He's saying there is rest for you, And it happens by trusting God to provide for all of those things for you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The work is finished. There's nothing left for you to do. Verse 10 says, For the one who has entered God's rest has himself also rested from his works, as God has rested from his. The one who has entered God's rest has rested from his own works. In other words, there's only one way to enter God's rest rest, to experience the life that was meant for you from the beginning of time. And that is if you trust God and you stop your own works. You trust God to have provided everything and you stop trying to provide what is necessary for you to enter his rest. Trust him. Stop your own efforts. Otherwise, you're not entering God's rest. You might get saved But that's not gonna be a restful experience because you're gonna be trying to make sure that you're saved. You're gonna be trying to make sure that you're you're good, right? That you maintain your sonship. The only way you can afford to stop your own works for salvation and life and righteousness is to trust his work, the work of Christ. And so what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of rest. It's a gospel of rest. Not a gospel of get to work. It's a gospel of rest. The good news of Jesus Christ is that you can rest. Jesus said it. We quote it all the time. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What are the next 15 verses about? The next 15 verses after Jesus makes that statement are about the Sabbath and people making their own rules to work at not working so that they can follow the Sabbath and be approved by God. That's compliance with the Sabbath, but not trusting what he actually wanted for them, and that was rest. And Hebrews, point, the point is not the Sabbath, capital S, the law, right? The point is the rest which Jesus is bringing. That's what Jesus is talking about, and that's what Hebrews is talking about. The rest which Jesus is bringing. It's not rest from work, it's rest from your works. The author of Hebrews is saying, you know what the Sabbath is. The point of the Sabbath was rest for you. The idea of the Sabbath that God instituted was about letting him provide for you so that you could rest because the only way you will actually find rest in your life is to walk with him, trusting him that he's provided for you. Otherwise, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. There remains a Sabbath rest for God's people and that Sabbath has nothing to do with the day of the week. It has everything to do with a life of rest. He has provided all that is necessary for you to get back the unity with him that Adam and Eve had in the garden. All you have to do is trust him. All you have to do is trust that he did enough, that the work is done that's why we started out in Hebrews 3.12, the verse that says, take care that none of you has an unbelieving heart. That's the basis for all of this, belief and trust, right? Now, having said all of that, we get to Hebrews chapter four, verse 11. And it says this, therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest Therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience. This verse is where most of us um, go wrong. I'm not saying the verse is wrong. I'm saying this, this is where we go wrong with this. We get through all this talk of rest and entering God's rest and expecting and, and, and knowing that God has done enough for us to, to enter this life of rest. And then we read verse 11 that says, therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest and right back to working, aren't we? Right back to it. Trying to work to enter that rest again because we're making every effort. So we're trying real hard. What if every effort to enter that rest meant taking every opportunity when we find ourselves getting back to the state of mind that said, well, if I don't, then God's gonna. Or if I, I, I do, then God's not gonna. Or if, if I do, then God is gonna. And we take those opportunities and we say, God already has. He already has. And this is not about a name, and it, name it and claim it kind of life. I'm talking about for those of us who've been born again, recognizing and trusting that God has already done in Jesus Christ 
everything that needed to be done for you, for you to be a righteous son or a daughter of the almighty king. Seeing yourself as anything less less than that is not trusting the work that he's done. And that can only lead you back to a place of not trusting and of not resting because you're thrust into all kinds of effort to try and be that son or that daughter or find your righteousness in your works because you think it's up to you. It's not, he's done it all. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he did all the work and then he rested and he invited them to live in that rest. They failed to trust God and so they didn't remain in that rest. But because of the work of Jesus, who has once again redeemed and restored those of us who come to him to be made new, we have the opportunity to enter that rest as well. but we have to trust what he's done to be enough. I think one of the reasons that I love this image of Adam and Eve literally living in God's rest, I love it so much, is because I think if you ask Adam and Eve, if you went to them with the question before the fall, okay, and you went to them with this question, what is the purpose of your life? I think they would have looked at you like you were crazy. That's not even a thought they would have had. What do, you, what do you mean, what is the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of your life? What do you mean, what's the purpose of my life? To live here in relationship with my father. That's the purpose of my life. What else is there? We make it so complicated. What's the purpose of my life? To live with God. Well, yeah, uh, but, but I mean, like, what does God want me to do for him to live with him? Right, 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 right. But I mean, what, what is his will for my life? Like, what things does he want me to accomplish for him to live with him? We make it complicated, don't we? To live in relationship with your father through the work of the son indwelled by the Holy Spirit you get to tend the garden with God. Cultivate the garden. Live in relationship with him. What does that mean for your choices and what you do and what you don't do? Well, you get to follow peace and follow rest. God has invited you into his rest. And rest doesn't mean not doing anything. So you're not gonna quit your job and just expect him to provide. But rest means doing what brings you life. God's created you to experience life in him. Doing what brings you life. And I promise you, if you follow peace, because I can hear some people going, yeah, but that just means I get to do whatever I want, right? Listen, if you follow peace, you won't be led into sin. Because sin is not a peaceful place to live for people who have been made new, been born again. Because that's not who you are anymore. God has invited you to rest and he's done everything necessary for you to be able to enter that rest. We just get to trust him and live there with him. He's provided it. 
I think that plays out spiritually, absolutely. I think that plays out physically, mentally, emotionally. God's provided it all. Now, we still live in a place that's not the garden, right? So we've got all kinds of outside factors that are going to attack that idea of being able to live in his rest. But I think that's what God has invited us to. And he's allowed for us as believers who've been made new, who are righteous sons and daughters of the king, the almighty king of the universe, we get to sit at the table with him. Not because we've done anything to deserve that or to earn that, but because we're his son or his daughter. Isn't that amazing? You get to crawl up in his lap because he's your daddy, Papa. That's an incredible image. Rather than trying to work my way up into his lap by doing enough stuff and then having him flick me off when, well, you know, you didn't do enough. It's an incredible image. Why don't you stand up to your feet? God, I know that Hebrews says a lot for us, especially when we have to go down the rabbit trail. We have to go follow it down the rabbit hole to to figure out what the author was saying to us. But Lord, I trust that your Holy Spirit lives in every single one of us that's been made new. I trust that you would take this message, plant it in our hearts, in our minds, and that as we go from here this morning, you would remind us of that daily. You've invited us to rest. What does it mean to rest? It means to live life with you. God, show us we don't have to do anything. God, show us that you're not requiring anything of us other than trust, believing that you have provided and enjoying a relationship that you have given to us, that you have made possible because of everything that you already accomplished in Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. We trust you, Lord. We trust you. Let that be our daily cry. We trust you. Trust for you to provide enough for this day. God, I messed up again, but I trust that you provided enough. Sorry for that. I don't want to do that anymore. I trust that you've provided enough for that. Lord, would you bring us near? Would you remind us of your love? We love you. Amen.